0: The the title of the sermon this morning is The God Who is is Heard and Not Seen. Uh, Art is universally used in order to worship or to experience or to relate to the supernatural. In Egypt, only the priests and the kings could read, which was the case in most ancient Near Eastern cultures. Only the kingly and the priestly classes were literate. The masses had the pyramids and the sphinx and the great artworks of ancient Egypt, which told their stories and represented their gods. The ordinary Egyptian would be dependent on the artwork of ancient Egypt to know anything about their gods. It's been noted by some observers of culture that the more pagan a culture is, the more dependent it is on images as opposed to words. That is an interesting thing to measure our own culture by, is it not? The sociologist Neil Postman wrote a landmark book in the 90s called Amusing Ourselves to Death, where he's writing about this phenomenon in our culture today, and he says this, the new focus on the image undermined traditional definitions of information, news, and to a large extent of reality itself. The pictures forced exposition into the background, and in some instances obliterated it all together. For countless Americans, seeing, not reading, became the basis for believing. Another author, a Christian author by the name of David Wells, has said, the cultural mantle has passed from the users of words to the makers of images. And that's certainly true in our own culture, is it not? Much easier to kind of relax in front of YouTube than to read a book. Or am I, the only, I hope I'm not the only one in the room who finds that easier. Now, friends, the making of images to p- represent the true and the living God is forbidden in the second commandment. Uh, if the first commandment that we saw last week said, do not give true worship to a false god, the second commandment says, do not give false worship to the true God. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 20 and just verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." There you have the second commandment, and I want us to think about four things to do with that commandment this morning. First of all, the prohibition. Do not make do not worship, do not make, do not worship. It's really a double prohibition in this commandment. God will not be represented by human artwork, nor will he be approached on the basis of our imagination. One of the most distinctive things about Israel in comparison with the other cultures in the ancient Near East, was the absence of idols and statues. It's interesting because that was reflected again in the, amongst the early Christians in, in the first century that they were actually called atheists because when people went into their places of worship, there were no idols and there were no gods represented in any way. They did not worship the Roman gods or the Greek gods. There were no statues that would give the idea of any new god. And so they were called atheists for the reason for, for, And the reason for that was because those who worship the God whose name is I Am, as we have seen over the last few weeks, they know that he will be worshipped in his way and not in our way. He will reveal himself his way and will not be described by our art. You are not to make for yourselves any idol. God's way of worship is not by responding to a statue, but obedience to his word. There are two elements. Uh, You shall not make, verse 4, and you shall not worship, verse 5. Is it because God is anti-art? It's a legitimate question. No. The answer is no. God is not anti-art. God is not like Allah, Allah is anti-art through the prophet Muhammad. Muhammad forbids art and denigrates artists, except architecture and mosaic art, including music and portraiture. There is no history of portraiture in Islam. But Israel was to make all manner of beautiful artworks, even and especially in association with the temple. The temple would have been one of the most magnificent structures in the known world. The Ark of the Covenant, with its fashioned and carefully sculptured cherubim on top of the lid, the angels on top of the lid of the Ark, was a magnificent artwork, and in fact the artist who fashioned the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, we are told in the Old Testament, was especially inhabited by the Holy Spirit as he did his woodwork to make something so beautiful. And so this commandment is not a blanket prohibition on all artwork, not even on religious artwork. Christianity has given rise to some of the most beautiful art in the history of art in the world today. But this commandment puts a blanket prohibition on all attempts to represent God. That's the key thing. It's not a ban on art. It's a ban on trying to represent God. Why? Secondly, the reason. What is the reason? Well, if you think about it for not too long, it's an, there's an obvious reason. An idol really holds up false qualities of the true God. It can't move, it can't speak, it can't love, it can't hear. Statues are dead and dumb and immovable and powerless and people bound down to them and revere them. Not only that, but an idol, not only does it present false values of the true God, but it also conceals true values of the true God. It fails to show a God who saves, a God who speaks, a God who sees, a God who hears, a God who loves, a God who we saw last week enters into relationship with people. It denies a God who is powerful and who made all things, a God who holds the heavens and the earth in the palm of his hand. An idol diminishes God. It domesticates God. It is a way to control God because when you finished worshipping it, you put it back in the cupboard. So who is God in the end? It's really a denial of God. Everything important about God is what the idol fails to show you, and what it does show you about God is false. It never represents God. It only misrepresents God. And so that is that is the reason, therefore the ban is not only on worshipping idols, it is on even so much as making them in an attempt uh, to represent God. And you know the Bible, well, God himself is merciless. In his ridicule of the worship of idols, listen to this verse from Isaiah 44. God speaking, he cuts down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow. Um, sorry, can you just go? Okay, he let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. He next verse. He used it as fuel for burning, some of it he takes and warms himself, he kindles a fire and he bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it, he makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol, bows down to it and worships it, and prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. And I think we're meant to smile at those verses, at the utter stupidity of um, using the same piece of wood that you cooked your food on to worship and to ask to save you. I remember when I lived in Durban, um, passing by one day a Hindu restaurant. And outside, on the pavement, at the entrance to the restaurant, was this cow, a very elaborate cow god. And, you know, decorated with a bejeweled cow, decorated and very colorful. And it was it's one of the Hindu gods, which I passed by on my way to get a hamburger at the restaurant next door. Can you see the stupidity of worshipping idols? There's a pointlessness to it. If the thing is a lump of stone or wood, then it is a lump of stone or wood, or beef for that matter. Once you say, that represents my God, then you will clean it and you will care for it and you will bow to it and you will serve it. And the commandment says, do not even make one. The true and the living God will not be represented by art or caricatured by idols. They never represent him, they only misrepresent him. But notice thirdly the consequences that are given in this verse for worshipping an idol. False worship of the true God has consequences. God takes it very seriously. Look at verse uh, 5 in the text. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my command." Here is God's reaction to making and worshipping an idol. He's jealous. His jealousy is aroused by the worship of these idols. Um, the making, the serving and the bowing down to idols is considered by God to be evil. That's the actual word in verse 5, iniquitous evil. It's an expression really of hatred towards God. It's not cultural relevance or aesthetic beauty or tolerable diversity of religious opinions. It is iniquity. It is evil to worship an idol. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 18, I, don't, I didn't include it on the screen, Paul says the problem with the worship of an idol is not per se the idol but the demon behind the idol. It's evil, it's demonic. It's demonic and it's evil and it's iniquitous because it denies relationship with God. That's what jealousy means here. It's not some negative or destructive emotion like we often associate it with. Jealousy here is what every husband and wife expects from their their spouse. It's based on solemn vows that were made at a marriage ceremony. There's a rightness to jealousy in marriage and protectiveness over the relationship. Israel, remember, is God's bride, we saw last time, and he will not tolerate another rival. It's evil because it denies relationship with God. It's evil because it affects others as well. Did you find verse 5 a bit strange? I found verse 5 a little bit unusual. Um, I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. This is not talking about intergenerational curses, which is often how this verse is read. God visiting in anger the iniquity um, on the children to the third and the fourth generation seems strange to us because of how individualistic we are. We don't think of corporate sin or historical guilt at all because we are such individualists. But what it is saying is that my parents' decisions are part and parcel of my life. Um, We need to be a little bit careful here. Look at this verse from Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous man will be accredited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. There is an individualism in the Bible that is right and appropriate where you pay for your own sins. Nobody else in your family or in your group, your social group, will pay for the sins that you have done. But nevertheless, sin and morality is always relational in the Bible, and therefore, you can't rebel against God in isolation. It always has an effect on others. If I'm in the grip of an idol, I can take my children and my children's children with me into the consequences of that idolatry, can't I? We do see this today. There are obvious idols like addictions which have an effect on the children and the grandchildren or abuses which have an effect intergenerationally. There are much more respectable idols that perhaps are deeper idols than addictions, like Sundays are just for us as a family. And so the children grow up never prioritizing Sundays or meeting with other Christians. And by the time they become young adults, they are nominal Christians, because family time has been an idol That has kept them away from God's people. And so idols have an intergenerational effect and we need to take that seriously. Those are the consequences of idolatry. God takes it very, very seriously. Fourthly and finally, I want to speak to you about true worship. The making and the worshipping of idols ignores the true image of God. What is the true image of God? Humanity is the true image of God, do you remember? We are made in the image of God and the word for image in Genesis chapter 1 is the word idol, it's the same. We're not allowed to make idols but God makes an idol, an image which he puts into us. We are God's image for like him we speak, we move, we love, we rule, we promise we create, we control, like him we are just and we are faithful. And while we have seriously failed in our godlikeness, we are still infinitely more like God than any idol, than any image or statue or picture. But you know, as well as I do, that not all of us have failed to be perfectly like God. There was one who bore the image of God, who was the perfect image of God, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He is the image, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Christ is the image of God, the image of the God who is invisible. The God who is invisible is clearly seen through his perfect image, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who was perfectly obedient to his Father, who bore the sins of the whole world, who was risen from the dead, who rules the world in justice and truth and mercy and forgiveness. He is the one who is the King of kings and the one who is God incarnate. True worship is not the worship of idols, or images, or statues, or ideas, or people. It is the worship of Jesus, the perfect image of God. Do you worship him? Have you submitted to him? Have you received him as your saviour and as your ruler? There's another thing that I want to say before I close, and that is that true worship is based on words and not on imagination. Deuteronomy chapter 4 gives us an idea of how uh, Moses understood this. Look at um, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire, Moses speaking to the Israelites on his deathbed. The Lord did what? He spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form, only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then he wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and the laws that you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. It's so important for us to understand that the way God reveals himself today, and not only today, but in Moses' day, is through writing, not through images. You know, you can only have an emotional response to an image. Um, I experienced it yesterday. I was driving with my son. He was starving, and we drove past the golden arches, and he went, oh. Oh. Because it was an emotional response to the golden archers. But you can have a thoughtful response to the written word, can't you? And that is how God has addressed us. That is how he has revealed himself to us. In the Middle, in the middle Ages, if you went to church um, in the medieval Roman Catholic church, you would walk into a building that was bigger than anything you had ever seen in your life, Emotion. You might have had that experience in Europe, when you walk into those enormous ancient cathedrals, and it almost takes your breath away, it's so magnificent and majestic. And then you would see a man dressed in a strange way, with a pointy hat and with bells and smells and whistles and all sorts of things dangling off him, and he would be speaking in a language that you didn't understand, Latin. And then at some point in the service, he would turn his back on you, and he would fiddle with some stuff on the table, bread and wine, and it would magically turn into flesh and blood. And he would say Latin words, hoc est, post est, this is my body, from which we get hocus pocus. And as he held up the wafer to administer mass, and said, this is my body in Latin, you would would see magic in front of you, you would encounter God in your imagination. And then the reformers come and the reformers say, no, that is not how you encounter God. Let's translate the Bible into English. Let's de-idolize the communion. And so not the, the wafer and the grape juice don't become important for the reformers, the words that accompany communion, become important for the Reformers because the Reformers want medieval Europe to understand that you encounter God not in your emotions, not in your imagination, but in a book and in words. Some Christians today want to encounter God through music, emotion, imagination. But God has chosen to reveal himself through the written word. And therefore the true worship of God is responding rightly to his revealed word. It's not about having an ambiguous emotional musical experience which you can have in church but you can also have at an Imagine Dragons concert like I did in February this year. It's by hearing and obeying his word. Look at what Psalm 95 says. Here is what true worship is. It should be on the screen, Psalm 95. <clears throat> Come, let us bow down in worship, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if only you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Mirabah." Here is a Psalm about how to worship God. Here is a Psalm about the primary Christian experience which is hearing the words of God. Do not harden your hearts, he says. And friends, for us today, that means hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads us to turn from idols and towards the true and living God. And so if you are a Christian, I know most of you are Christians here today, let's love to hear about Jesus. Let's not harden our hearts or grow weary or ho-hum, I've heard that story before. Let's love to hear the Gospel, let's feed off it, let's recognize it for what it is, let's check our hearts and make sure that they're not calcifying against the Gospel, but that they are soft to the Gospel and feeding off the Gospel and needing the Gospel and wanting to hear the Gospel not just once a week on a Sunday but every day during the week. But if you're not a believer, I want you to notice the sixth verse, the last verse of our reading this morning, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 6. He shows love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's desire is to be loving and merciful and forgiving towards you this morning. You can come to him today, you can ask him to forgive you for your false worship and he will be quick to forgive you and to put mercy and love and grace on you and give you wonderful hope for the future as we wait to be rescued from the coming wrath. I wonder if you've done that or if you'd like to do that this morning. Will you bow with me as we pray? Perhaps just a moment of silence for us to um, reflect and think about anything that you may have heard or read this morning and to make a right response to God with a soft heart in the privacy of your own heart. Father, we confess that we um, live in a world full of images that grab our attention and our hearts all the time, experiences that we want, feelings that we hanker after. Lord, we pray that we would not be a people who have been completely sucked in by our emotions or our imaginations, but that who value and respond to your word written in the Bible read and explained regularly in various forums, Lord, please would you help us to turn away from falsely worshipping you, the true God, to true worship as we receive your Son through his words written and preserved for us in the Scriptures and that we would respond with soft hearts. We pray for those who may be with us this morning who do not know you yet, Lord, that you would be merciful to them and reveal yourself to them through what they have heard. Would you germinate belief in their hearts through the words that their ears have heard this morning? We thank you so much for revealing yourself to us in a book that can benefit generation after generation. Help us to love that word, to centralise that word, to prioritise that word, but above all, Lord, to obey it. And we pray this for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.